Hello friends and welcome to church this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you and you're new with us, my name's Kurt, I'm the minister of the church. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the story of the Bible before Joshua. Um, yeah, I'll tell you in a second why we're going to do that. Uh, if you are watching from your device, it's best to do it in side-by-side mo- side side mode. So you'll have on one side, you'll have uh, the, the slides that we'll be going through, and the other side you'll have me. And you can choose to either have me big or, or the slide smaller, depending on how big you want me to be. Um, why don't I pray, and then we'll look at uh, this first section of the Bible. So let me pray. Father God, we just want to praise you and thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for this incredible technology that enables us to connect like this. And so we just please pray that you would bless us as we sit under your word this morning, that you would reveal who you are to us, that you are the holy God, and that we would be in awe of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read to you from a section of Joshua to begin with. It says this, When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai Ai, and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. Now today we're beginning a series on the book of the Bible called Joshua and it's the sixth book in and it involves something called holy war. Uh, That is the destruction of complete people groups within a country by God's people. A book that honestly to Aussie years makes us feel very uncomfortable. In fact, it's probably a little bit offensive to most people. And the question comes up, why is this God ordering the killing of these people? It's a massive question, isn't it? And so my concern as we were jumping into the book of Joshua is that if we jumped straight in without an understanding of the Bible story so far of what actually has taken place beforehand, then it was going to be really difficult to come to grips with what this book is saying. And so today my plan is to introduce you to the story before Joshua. That is the first five books of the Bible before the book of Joshua. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a particular theme that runs through that section, and that is the theme of holiness. So we're going to start at page one of the Bible. It's not going to take 600 years. It'll be short. Uh, Page one of the Bible. I'm going to go quick. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what we see right in the beginning is a holy God creates a holy people to live in a holy garden. Okay. First, a holy God. Uh, The word holy in the Bible, most people think it just means you're a really good person. Uh, The word holy in the Bible at its root has this idea of being separate or, or unique. And so in God's case, when it talks about God as holy in the Bible, it's talking about God as absolutely unique, as absolutely pure, as perfectly good and set apart from everything. And so Genesis 1 chapter, verse 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the opening line of the Bible, you see a God who is separate from his creation. He's distinct from his creation 
And he creates with the power of speaking, as you keep reading through, everything. An all-powerful, separate, holy God. Now, one metaphor for thinking about it is this idea of the sun. Um, There is only one sun in our universe. There might be other suns in other universes. There's only one sun in our universe. And it is the life force that gives life to all living things. And so things will be alive to the degree to which they are close to the sun. Uh, If you're way away from the sun, there's not going to be life. But if you're closer, there's a chance for life. God is the unique, pure life force for power and power for good in the universe. He's the thing that everything revolves around. Without him, everything dies. And so this holy God in Genesis 1 creates a holy people, humanity, to be in relationship with him, to reflect his holiness, to reflect his glory in a sense, to reflect his goodness and his purity and and to seek to create and sustain life in the world. The holy God creates holy people to be in relationship with him in his holy garden, to live in his holy garden. It's a garden called the Garden of Eden and it's full of fruit and animals and life. It's a garden where God is actually present with the people. And so you read in Genesis 3, it says, and the Lord God walked within the garden in the cool of the day. A holy garden where God walked amongst them. But not only that, there were things in the garden that reminded them of God's holiness. So Genesis 2, 9, it says, Then out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the picture is this. God makes lots of these beautiful fruit trees that, for people to eat. But he makes two trees in the garden that are in a sense separate or unique or, or, or holy. You have the tree of life. That is the tree from which if you eat from gives you eternal life with God. And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God places these trees, it says, in the center of the garden. But he warns the people. He says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. For if you do, you will die. Now the function of these two trees in this beautiful creation with all the other trees is to be a reminder to the people about God, that God was holy, that he was unique, that he is the one who gives life. He provides this tree that gives eternal life, that he is the one who decides on what is good and evil. He is the one who makes sense of what works best in this world because he designed it. And so simply put, these trees were to be a reminder that God was God and they were not. That God was God and they were not. But as you keep reading in the story, you get to the problem and that comes in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the people reject the holy God to create their own holiness. They reject the holy God to create their own holiness. See, as you read the story... Tragically, the original people decide to eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Now, when when we say knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just that they knew what was right and wrong because they knew what was right and wrong before them. This tree offered the chance to decide what was right and wrong. And so that choice to eat from that tree expressed two things. Firstly, it expressed the fact that they were rejecting God as holy. Their choice said, 
God, we don't think your goodness is worth living for. We are going to live like you are dead to us. So they reject God's holiness by eating from the tree. And second thing they're doing is they're seeking to create their own holiness, their own godness. They're saying, God, we are going to separate ourselves from you and we are going to be unique. We are going to be the all-powerful rulers of our world. We'll decide what is good and evil, how this world works best. And so in the midst of this holy creation, with a holy God, the people have become unholy. And it's a decision that affects everything in our history. Because this is the point of the Bible. It's the history of the whole world. And as you keep reading through the Bible's story, you see... It affects every decision that keeps getting made. Every person that follows from those original people instinctively and unconsciously, that is, they don't even have to think about it, makes the same decision to reject God as holy, to seek to rule our own lives, to declare to ourselves the holy rulers of this world. And the consequences, as you keep reading, are disastrous because when I without knowing it decide that I'm going to be the unique all-powerful ruler of the world and so do you then we're having clashes aren't we we're not gotten on because I want the place and you want the place and we and we're trying to fight each other and and so you see it in marriages and you see it in families and you see it in workplaces And you see it in playgrounds with kids. And you see it in politics. People wanting to be the unique holy ruler of the world. But the biggest problem of it all, of of rejecting God, comes at the end of chapter 3. So I'm going to read to you from verse 22 of chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God says, I'll let them, says, if I let them live forever, there'll be no end to the destruction that they cause. And so what he chooses to do, as you keep reading, is he removes them from his presence. He removes their access to the tree of life. And so here's this idea. We were originally made to live forever with God. But our unholiness means we can't live in his presence. God needs to remove us from his presence. And so it's like the sun. The sun is a really good thing when you have an ozone layer. But when you are 100 kilometers from the sun, if you're a human being, it's extraordinarily dangerous. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Eden of Garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, in in the same way, a stick cannot survive near a flame. These flaming swords surrounding the tree of life are a symbol of the danger for unholy people now of being in the presence of a holy God. That impure humans cannot stand before the face of the holy god it's like the sun god cannot look upon us without destroying us for wrecking his good world and so god's choice here his choice of 
to have mercy on us in a sense, is to remove us from his presence in order to help us find a way back to him, to fix the problem of unholiness. And so the Bible's story, in a sense, from Genesis 3 onwards, is how can a people live again with a holy God in a holy place? That's the thing that drives the story. How can a people live again with a holy God in a holy place? And God's solution kicks off in Genesis chapter 12. God establishes a holy relationship. He establishes a holy relationship. So I'm going to read from Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." What does God do? This is his plan to solve the problem of unholy people. First, he chooses a man. He chooses Abraham from all the people of the Abram and his family out of all the people of the world. Now, it's not because he looks at Abraham and thinks he's a good guy. He's the goody and all these other guys are bad. I'm going to choose him. No. As you read the story of Abraham, what what Abraham did, he's just like everyone else. He was unholy. He worshipped other gods. He was impure like the rest of them. But God chose Abraham not because of Abraham's goodness, but because of his grace. And so in a sense, God brings him towards him to make him holy. All right, doesn't mean he was morally perfect, but he set apart Abraham from the rest of people. And he says, through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the world. I'm going to make it possible through you, Abraham, to get back to the Garden of Eden before sin came into the world. Now, you're thinking, even though Abraham didn't start good, that as Abraham went along, he got better and better and better. And and the people that followed him in his family got better and better and better. But as you read Genesis, you realize that anything but rape, family violence, jealousy, greed, deceit, incest is a part of Abraham's family. But time after time through the book of Genesis, God is fulfilling his promises. It's not about Abraham. It's about God's plan of salvation. And so Abraham gets a big family. He's promised the special land of Israel. He's promised to bless, to be blessed and be a blessing to the world. And then you get to the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. You see that his family has multiplied. It is a massive nation, a couple of million people. He is blessed, but they're actually outside the promised land of blessing called Israel. That was the promise to Abraham that he'd have this land of Israel. Instead, they're actually stuck as slaves in Egypt. So God sends a man named Moses and Moses's job is to lead them out of Egypt back into the promised land of Israel to bring about the promises to Abraham. And he does it through the the 10 plagues, you know, the 10 plagues of Egypt and the parting the Red Sea. And so that's the book of Exodus. And he brings them through the Red Sea and takes them out to Mount Sinai. Now, when they get to Sinai, the big question is still there. How can a holy God be present with an unholy people? The same problem from Genesis 3. And so from Exodus 19 through Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you get the instructions from God 
on how he's going to make it possible for these unholy people to live in his presence without him destroying them. All right, so starting off in Exodus 19, listen to what it says there. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's means of making this unholy people holy is through what's called a covenant. Now, a covenant is a a word for a special legal relationship of loving commitment. So when you marry a person, you make a covenant. That's a covenant between two people. God forms a new covenant with this, this nation through Moses. And this covenant will be the means through which this nation will be able to live holy to the Lord. He's made them holy by saving them. He's set them apart. But this is the way their lives will reflect God's purity and goodness in the world. And so as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's four distinct parts to what it means for this nation to be holy. The first thing is the law. So Exodus 19 and 20, God comes down on the Mount Sinai and he gives Moses, you know the story, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. Now, the Ten Commandments is not the the full extent of the law that God gives them. It's actually the nucleus of an extensive set of instructions on how God's people are to live wholly to him. And so the law includes moral things such as do not murder, don't commit adultery, how to do relationships. But it also includes strange things that you think, well, what's that about? About what you ate and what you wore, all right? what you touched even. Living by these laws would mark Abraham's family as God's holy people, his unique people set apart by him. Second aspect that God gives them to make them this, holy, this nation holy is the priesthood. God sets aside special pre-people from within Abraham's family who are set aside as priests to represent the nation before God and God before the nation. And so they were set apart in a whole bunch of ceremonies and they wore special clothes and and, um, emblazoned across the clothes said, holy to the Lord. So God gives them the law. He gives them this priesthood. Third, he gives them the sacrificial system. Now, right from the garden, the reality is that because people have rejected God, that has led to spiritual death. They're cut off from God, who's the life force of the world. They're cut off from him. So they suffer spiritual death, but eventual physical death. The sacrificial system is in order to try and prevent death. Instead of people dying for the rejection of God, God gives them a system of sacrificing animals in place of them. And so every day the priest would come on behalf of the people and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people in order that the sins of the people would be covered time and time again so that a holy God could be in the midst of this unholy people. Fourth, God gives them the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a a tent, effectively. It's a tent, a special tent designed by God to be placed at the center of Israel's camp. Now, the tabernacle was to be a symbol 
of the Garden of Eden. It comprised of multiple areas. You see on the screen there, the first section is what's called the outer court. In the outer court, you, that's the places where the priests would offer sacrifices. So you had altars out there. As you go into a next tent, which is in there, it's called the holy place. As you walked into the holy place, you'd see a bunch of artifacts, including a lampstand that looks like a tree that was to be a reminder of the Garden of Eden. But then as you go through to the next level place in the tent, this is the inner sanctum of the tent. This was called the Holy of Holies. This was the place God said he symbolically dwelled. He placed a gold box in there called the Ark, which they, God said this would be his throne. This is the place where he was enthroned. And then within this room, you had a big curtain that covered the front of it with two angels on the front. And so this curtain prevented people going into this inner sanctum where God dwelled. And it was a picture of Genesis chapter 3. A reminder with these two angels that God's presence, you cannot walk into the presence of God because we're unholy. And that there's something blocking the way. See, the tabernacle was a visual reminder of the problem from Genesis chapter 3. That unholy people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So God gives them law. He gives them priests. He gives them sacrifice. He gives them the tabernacle to enable his holiness to dwell with his unholy people. Now, let me take you back to the story. All right. After Mount Sinai, Moses leads the people to the promised land of Israel. So they're off on their journey. And the way God describes the land of Israel, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which is supposed to remind you of the Garden of Eden. This promised land of Israel was to be the new Eden, a place for a holy God to live with holy people in a holy land. But as you keep reading the story over the next 40 years in the book of Numbers, instead of entering into the land when they go to the edge of the land, they fail to trust God. And so instead, the people of Israel wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses and his generation after that 40 year period die. And then 40 years later, they're on the verge of entering the promised land again. Moses preaches a bunch of sermons to the people on the edge of the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness about how to live as God's holy people in the land. That's the book of Deuteronomy. That's Moses's sermons about to enter into the land. And then in Deuteronomy 34 that we just read, Moses dies. And then you have the book of Joshua. So that's the story leading up to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the assistant of Moses. And as we'll see next week, he is the one who will lead God's people into the promised land. But as you begin the book of Joshua, you still have the same question from Genesis 3. How will an unholy people live with a holy God in his holy land? Yes, you have the covenant. You have the law. You have the sacrificial system. You have the priest. You have the tabernacle. But are God's people going to be faithful to that covenant, to that relationship, so they can remain with God in that holy land? How is God going to bring about his holiness with an unholy people in this land? And what we're going to see in the book of Joshua is alongside covenant, 
God is also going to bring about what's called holy war. God is going to purify the land to create a new Eden by removing people who reject him. And he's going to use Abraham's family to do it through battle. Now, this idea of holy war, that section I read at the beginning this morning about the destruction of the town of Ai. As people read the book of Joshua and read of this destruction of people groups, they are really uncomfortable with it. But before we get into it, I think there's three things we need to note. One, we need to remember as we're reading through the book of Joshua that God's people are not the goodies. It's not God's people, the goodies, and the, the people in the land, the Canaanites, the baddies. Throughout Joshua, it's clear that if God's people don't live wholly to him, they will be destroyed as well. It's not God's war against the baddies in the land. It's God's war against all unholiness. Secondly, the people in the land that Israel goes into, they're not all destroyed. God will save Rahab's family. God will save the Gibeonites. Because they recognize and fear and recognize God as holy and they choose to worship him. Number three, we need to remember that God, we need to see that God has been patient for a long time. The people in this land that God is telling them to go in and destroy have been sacrificing babies to their gods. They've been doing evil things. And it's something that God has been aware of for 500 years. You read about it in Genesis chapter 15. God says they were doing it back then. For 500 years, God had been patient with the people in this land, hoping that they would turn from their evil. But now the time had come. Joshua is the story of God's war on unholiness. I wonder, are you uncomfortable with that? I think a lot of people are happy to believe in a nice God. You know, like a nice fluffy God, a grandfatherly type guy who, who never comes down on his grandchildren. And just, yeah, that's lovely. That's nice. That's nice. That's nice. But they're not comfortable with the God who judges. But honestly, do we really want a God who does nothing in the face of evil? Do we really want a God who does nothing in the face of evil? No, of course we don't. At the end of the day, we want a God who judges evil. We do. The, the important question for us is then, how do we know if this judge is a good God? That, is, that this God is a good and fair judge. How do we know that? How can we know that the God of Joshua, when he's bringing destruction in these people, is right, is just, is fair, is good? What proof do we have that this God is doing it out of love? It's because he loves his good world that he cannot allow evil to destroy it rather than hate some sort of spite that he just wants to wipe them out and wipe them out out of spite. How do we know that this is a good God? Well, 1,300 years later in the Bible story, if you fast forward the Bible story, a man named Jesus claimed to be the Holy Son of God. And that Holy Son came into the world not to bring war on unholy people, but he came to take the violence 
onto himself. See, every time we read in Joshua about the destruction of people for unholiness, that is only the smallest picture of what Jesus endured on the cross. Jesus took on the cross God the Father's holy justice for our evil, for our rejection of God. Jesus endured the most violent, holy war on the cross for you and me. So that those who trust in him might be made holy, might might receive his holiness, the perfect life he lived, so that we might be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. His Holy Spirit living in the believer now and one day face to face when we see God in his new creation. A perfected Eden right at the end of the Bible story where a holy God will dwell with a people made holy by Jesus in God's new holy world. And so, friends, I told you this was a preparation sermon for Joshua because there's times as we're reading through Joshua, you might wince and go, oh, I don't know if I like that. I might cut that bit out of the Bible. But every time you wince at the violence of Joshua, I want it to be a reminder of the violence that Jesus endured on the cross to save you and I. The God who brings holy war in Joshua is the God who endured holy war within himself, father and son. The God of Joshua is good. He's a good judge. He's a good God. And he is holy. And so this morning, if you are along with us this morning, and you're hearing about the holiness of God, and you have not put your trust in Jesus' death to make you holy, then right now, wherever you are, you are spiritually cut off from the presence of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. You are separated from his presence. And so this morning, I'm pleading with you to come back. Come back to him. Ask Jesus to be your saviour. Allow him to take that holy war on the cross for you that you might be brought back into the presence of a holy God, having the Holy Spirit live in you now for the rest of your life and one day face to face in God's perfected new creation. If that's you this morning, then I pray that you would respond some way that you would talk to God this week and say, God, I want to accept Jesus. And if you do, please email me. Let me know that I can help you grow as a follower of Jesus. Friends, my prayer for this series in Joshua is that we would see time and time again the holiness of God. At the same time, we might recognize the depth of our unholiness But at the center of it, we might remember the glory of Jesus, the one who has made us holy. Let me pray. Father God, we just want to praise you 
for this opportunity this morning to listen to what your word says about your true character, that you're a holy God. You're a good, pure, perfect, just judge. And Father, even though when we're going to hit the book of Joshua, there's going to be points at which we think, how is that fair, God? How is that fair, Father? We need to remember Jesus. Evil gods do not endure the cross. You are a good God, proved by the death of Jesus, who took holy war into himself for us. Father, I pray that through this series, we would have a greater understanding of your holiness, just how, how wrong sin is, that we might brought to this place of utter adoration of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.